Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. For over 30 years, David MacDonald has worked in Ireland's biggest prisons. He started out in Mount Joy in 1989 before moving to Portleash Prison and due to the presence of IRA and other subversive prisoners, was then, which was then the most secure prison in Europe, he then moved on to the new Midlands Prison and um, here he dealt with notorious household names like John Gilligan, Christy Kinahan, Brian Meenan, Desi O'Hare and more recently killers like Graham Dwyer in his average working day. And now he's teamed up with award-winning examiner journalist Mick Clifford to bring to life a lot of the stories and a lot of the, the incidents that he's encountered during his time. And the book is called Unlocked. And David joins me now. Good morning. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? Good morning, David. Um, Unlocked an Irish prison officer's story by David MacDonald with with Mick Clifford is published by Sandy Cove and is available in shops and online now. And it's a remarkable book of a a remarkable life for yourself. Can I just ask you, first of all, David, why did you want to become a prison officer? Well, Fiona, I grew up in Portlaoise, um, literally 400 metres up from the Portlaoise prison, which was the only prison there at the time. The Midlands prison came along a lot later. Um, I went to school with prison officers' sons and daughters. I saw how they socialised with each other. I, you know, I was in contact with them and I used to pass that big building on a daily basis and I was very curious actually what went in behind the, on behind the walls. Mm. Back then, nobody spoke about the prison. It was very secretive. Uh, tensions were very high. We they had um, a large number of subversive prisoners, meaning IRA, INLA, and um, security was massive. And David, like the opening chapter of this book, um, it's um, an account of a riot threat that emerged in the Midlands prison when some of the most notorious prisoners in the state were threatening all out coordinated chaos unless you were transferred to another prison. (laughs) I mean, you know, people get stressed out about their jobs, but I mean, if you had that hanging over your head, I just don't know how anybody would cope. How did you cope with that? Um, Fiona, at that stage, I'd been a prison officer for quite some time, so you learn you learn your job. Um, it can be difficult. The people that are working today and tomorrow in, in the prison service, prison officers, they do a remarkable job under very stressful conditions at times. Mm. Um, in 2008, there was a unit set up called the Operation Support Group, OSG for short. And our job at that time was to break up gang activity within the prison estates and to stop contraband from entering prison, mainly drugs, phones, shivs, 
that type of thing. Um, I was an assistant chief officer at that stage, and myself and my team had, uh, by 2013, had learned our craft very well. And um, we had a very successful Christmas in stopping drugs and phones from entering the prison um, right up to nearly Christmas Day. And this didn't sit well with some of the the gang leaders. And um, just after Christmas then, they decided that 150 of them would stay out in the landing and they were looking for one head and that head was mine. Um, I got information from the Gardaí in the Phoenix Park that they'd put a level five threat on me, which is the most serious one you can get. Mm. And um, so the idea was, look, it was intimidation. It was to try and get us to back down because drugs are a huge currency in a prison. And if they don't have those, they don't have power. And if they don't have phones, they can't run their little empires from inside the walls of the prison. Mm. So I just became not their most favorite person in the world. Um, I went off their Christmas card list mm. and they were paying for my head. So it didn't stop us. It actually, if anything else, what it proved was, uh, Fiona, was that we were doing our job exceptionally well yeah. um, because of their reaction. So was we it, kept It must moving. have been really tough though, David, to come into work every day with a level five threat hanging over your head. It's, <laughs> um, it, look, it, <laughs> you get on with it. You know, it's mm. your job. It's what you get paid to do. I mean, prison officer's job is extremely difficult. But so again, are people like ambulance drivers who go to the scene of accidents and have to witness and deal with horrific things. Same as fire brigade. You get moulded. You know, I don't think anyone grows up and says, "I want to be a prison officer." But when you join the prison service, the job itself moulds you into that role of what you're what you're doing. Security is massive within a prison. So, you know, the safe custody and taking care of prisoners is also a huge part of it. But when we set up the OSG, we stopped massive amount of contraband entering the prisons. And, like, we were seeing some horrific things on it in the prisons. I mean, it's not a pretty sight to walk into a cell and see a prisoner that may have OD'd and mm. vomit and bowels emptied. And then the effects that on his family on the outside. Also, these gang leaders, because of the currency of drugs were also intimidating an awful lot of other prisoners, which was then feeding to their families on the outside. And they were being made to do horrible things to pay off maybe drug debts or use of mobile phones. And the OSG was very, very successful at curtailing a great deal of that. And David, this all happened, this level threat five happened when you were in Midlands prison. And as you said, you were well into your career at that stage. But one of the first jobs that you were ever given in Mount Joy was to supervise the prisoners coming out with their chamber pots full of urine in the morning to empty them into a big trough. I mean, like, it's just, it's unthinkable. Well, it's only actually in the very recent times, Fiona, that we've had in-cell sanitation in, in prison cells. Um, up to that, it was the chamber pot. And when you were a young officer, you got the harder or more nastier jobs. And one of them was to stand on the bottom of a landing, supervising prisoners at quarter past eight in the morning, as they'd all come down with their pots, sometimes quite full and spilling, and empty it into a big, um, what we call a sluice, mm. uh, which is a big basin sink, really. And um, the stench would have been rather unpleasant. Um, you always try to make sure that you didn't have a curry the night before because your tummy wouldn't just take it. And it wasn't, it, you know, things have improved massively since yeah. then, thankfully. But, and uh, did you think then, like, so at that stage, um, you know, you were starting out in your career, you had watched with interest the prison growing up, you were wondering what was behind the walls. At that point, did you think, do you know what? I, I'm done. This is not for me. 
No, no, that, no, no, that was, look, Fiona, I was very lucky. Um, I could have gone into the job and maybe vegetated on a gate for 30 years. But mm. I was very fortunate. I got moved around. I got promoted. I got to do a lot of interesting things. I worked with both managers that were very, very supportive um, at times. And I worked with, made great friends and colleagues that I worked with. So I, I was very fortunate. Um, I didn't, the prison life could be quite boring um, if you, you know, if you just, just sort of wanted to have a very quiet life. Yeah. That would have driven me scatty, to be honest with you. So I was very lucky the way I got moved around. And a lot of this is then obviously in the book and the stories were there to tell. Mm. And then Mick Clifford is the guy who a lot of your listeners will know. Didn't just put those words on paper. He actually will put the reader right in to the prison. You know, Mick came to me. We would have known each other while I was still working in the prison and we had built up a good friendship and mm. when I retired we decided to do this over COVID and um, look McClifford is McClifford he's just excellent at what he does and yeah. he really gets the reader into the environment into the sounds of the prison what it smells like and not just for the prisoners or the inmates it's also for the prison officers who have to work in this environment every day and the book is, of course, Unlocked, an Irish Prisoner's Officer's Story by David MacDonald and Mick Clifford. And one of the most harrowing chapters, I think, in this book is called Dead Men Walking. And it's when you were assigned to a segregated block for prisoners suffering from AIDS. That must have been a very frightening time. Um, it was, actually. Um, and it was something that I had buried uh, in the deep corners of my head. I had actually you know, put it to one side, as I think a lot of us have, have, have done, because it was quite difficult to live with or relive and it was only in the book that this kind of had to come back out um, to the fore um, back then it AIDS was a death sentence um, you know mm. um, stars had died from like Freddie Mercury and um, once diagnosed with it there was no cure back then so the prison service had a knee jerk reaction not entirely all their own fault I have to say but no one understood it but there Reaction was to segregate any prisoner that was tested positive for HIV. Unfortunately, what they did was they put these people into what I can only describe as a hellhole. It was called the B basement. It mm. was under B wing in Mount Joy. It had no natural light. Not that there was a whole lot of natural light in Mount Joy anyway, but this had less. Um, the cells were dingy. It was rodent infested, cockroaches, mice, all this, like, I mean, infested. Um, the cells were tiny. The exercise yard was tiny as well, surrounded by razor wire. Their visits were curtailed because of where they were located. Their food was served to them on paper plates and again was not good because of the distance it had to come. Everything was disposable. Everyone had a fear. There was a lot of myths around it. If someone spat at you, if you touched their sweat, if you drank from the same cup, you know, these were all the myths that surrounded HIV at the time. Mm. Um, I was a little bit more fortunate. My wife was a chief researcher and information officer for the HSE in the AIDS program. So I was a bit more aware of what was real and what wasn't. And, um, you know, there's one part of that chapter where there's a story told where I'm handcuffed to a prisoner and I take him over to the Matter Hospital, which if anyone knows the North Circle Road, Mount Chai and the Matter Hospital are directly opposite each other. So we often would walk the prisoners over rather than use transport. And, um, Going into a, an office, I had two colleagues with me, and the doctor came in. doctor said to us, look, lads, I need to talk to this guy on my own. I was handcuffed to him. I, there was a window in the office. I turned to the two officers and nodded. They went outside the door. I turned to the prisoner and just said, look, you understand, I can't leave you. And he did. 
the doctor in as kind of way as possible um, give this guy the news that he had months to live. Um, mm. The consultation was finished. We went outside. We did a cigarette. We had a chat. And the prisoner just turned to me and in more colourful language than I can use on air, just said to me, I'm done for. Um, and I didn't answer him, Fiona, because I didn't have an answer. Yeah. Um, talking to him like he was, like I say, in his maybe 21, 22, but he had three kids, very young kids. Yeah. And I was bringing them back to this hellhole of the B base and putting them back in there. And sure enough, um, a couple of months later, he was transferred to a hospice, I think, in Blanchestown, where he died. And that was the fate for a lot of these people mm. that were incarcerated at the time. Um, I know that everyone that's inside the wall of a prison has done somebody somewhere harm, whether it be financial, physical, emotional, or maybe an awful lot worse. But the way we they were treated back then was horrific. And like David, just listening there to you, you obviously build up some sort of a relationship with the inmates. Um, and you had an encounter one time with one of, I suppose, one of the most notorious uh, prisoners in Ireland, John Gilligan, where he actually stood up for you. <laughs> he did. Um, he, he did. He did. No, look at. I'm, I'm saying this right open on air. John Gilligan is what he is. He's a talk. Yeah. But on one occasion, I found myself isolated on the end of what's called E1. I don't know if anyone ever took the trip from Dublin to Cork uh, back in the, before the bypass. Yeah. That big, great building that's there, that's the, called the E block. And on the ground floor was housed what's, what we term the heavies, which is the likes of John Gilligan, you know, me and uh, Dutchy Holland, people like that. And um, I got myself isolated. Um, there were trouble that broke out and I had no way off to land them. Um, a prisoner called Paul Ward uh, thought all his Christmases had come together mm. because Paul Ward was one of the prisoners that held five prison officers hostage for over five hours in Mount Joy mm. and they became known as defaulters and we dealt with them and the book goes into that in much better detail than I can explain on air. Um, so Paul Ward saw me, he had a shave and he was coming for me and Gilligan gave the order for him to stop. Uh, Ward didn't stop straight away and then Gilligan, a bit more forcefully, uh, gave a second roar and Ward stopped. Now, if Ward had come for me, he would have been joined by many others and I was in bother. Mm. Now, why Gilligan did it, I'm never going to be quite sure. Um, I wasn't friends with him. Um, uh, you don't become friends with prisoners, Fiona. There has to be the divide. You yeah. never become their friend. But I think it is more to show me that he had the power. He had power over the landing, if you like, mm. and that he could rule the roost. But, but he did save my bacon. Um, and as I said, I know exactly what John Gilligan is, is. Yeah. Another notorious prisoner is Brian Meehan. And you um, came across an incident where you were um, handcuffed to him. And of course, Brian Meehan was convicted of Veronica Gearan's murder. And um, you um, he, he, uh, he, he shook your hand after the death of your brother. Yeah, again, you see... Sometimes, Fiona, the, the bigger the criminal, the more they have a certain amount of intelligence. Like if people think that these are people are fools or just thugs alone, that's not what they are. They have um, they, they have a cleverness about them. And yes, my brother had, had been killed in a car accident on his way to Mount Joy. He was also a prison officer. And I had come back to work after the, his death and I met Brian Mean, who came over to me and put out his hand and um, offered me his condolences. Um it was in vision of other prison officers and I was a bit wary because this is not the norm, really. Yeah. And he also basically said to me, look, it's, you're not going to get any hassle on 
there, you won't land in. Um, nobody's going to give you any grief. Um, this, you know, and he was quite nice about it. Mm-hmm. So you get that side of human side to them as well. Now, again, I have to say, I know what Brian Mean did. The crime was horrific, killing a young mother. And Brian Mean is still today in Portlaoise Prison. Mm. Another prisoner, of course, is Graham Dwyer, who um, people in Cork would have a particular interest in because he's from Bandon, and of course he was convicted of the murder of Elaine O'Hara. Um, but you was, you described him as a model prisoner, and that some of your colleagues were even looking to him for advice on building extensions to their <laughs> homes because he is an architect by trade. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, he was even had a, quite a high uh, public profile. He'd been on TV and other things. Mm. Look, Graham Dwyer is what you might call sweet. Um, like, when I was in the Midlands prison, and even today, there's approximately 850 prisoners in there. Um, at least a quarter, if not more, are in for one form or, or other of a sex offence mm. or a serious crime against females or youths. So, Graham DeWire would be, um, he would be the sort of one that he wouldn't um, be violent to someone like me. To women, that could be a completely different story, but not to someone like me or some of my male colleagues. But he would come up and he would ask things in the most nice way. He would be sweet, very annoying, actually. He would be incredibly annoying because of the way he would be, you know, please this and please that and what have you. But, um, like, we kind of have a saying in the prison service, a good sheepdog would kind of mind prisoners like that. He's not troublesome. That doesn't um, say that we don't have an awful lot of prisoners that are extremely violent and are a handful to deal with. And the staff do an excellent job at managing those individuals as well on a daily basis. And David, um, later on in your career, you were recruited to the OSG, which is the Operational Support Group, and that was set up to stop the flow of contraband into the prisons. And I think it's one of the most entertaining chapters in the book because, you know, a lot of the stories that you tell are obviously very upsetting, but they're told in such a way that you see the funny side of things as well. And and, um, I suppose it was quite entertaining to find out how um, a lot of the contraband was brought into the prisons. Okay, Tony, we kind of have to treat it as a game, and I'm not being flippant when I say that, mm. because we they come up with a new way uh, to get contraband drugs, for example, into the prison. We'd stop it. They come up with another new way. We'd stop it. I mean, there's, again, unfortunately, because of the kind of content, there's a lot of things that can't, I can't say on air, especially yeah. on you know, morning radio. Yes, it exactly. would not be good. But I can give you an example of some of the simpler ways that they would have used. I mean... Um, initially what they would have done was they were using, we had drug dogs, so they're called passive drug dogs that every visitor would have to go by and the dog, if they picked up a scent, the visitor would be brought into a, um, a search room and be given a further search and be put on a screen visit or asked ask them to reschedule their visit, but basically they weren't going to have a normal visit. So um, they were using baby's nappies a lot. Um, they would make sure the baby's nappies were soiled and they would put the drugs then into the, the poo and this was the disguise, the smell of the drugs from the drug dog. So when we realized this, we set up a room, made sure there was no cameras in it. One of our female officers would go into the room with the visitor who had the baby. We'd have a supply of nappies and we'd make them change the nappies. Mm. Um, with another incident where we had this guy who had been uh, hurt in a motorbike accident, he'd actually lost his leg. He was quite a young guy, but he would have had to go to um, rehab in Dunleary on a regular basis. Um, so he had a false leg, and when he would go up there, prior to him going up, someone would go into the disabled toilet with a sanitary bin full of mobile phones. Mm. 
maybe up to 10, 12 mobile smartphones. Now, an ordinary 20 euro phone in a prison can fetch anything up to nearly 2,000 euros. So a smartphone has massive value. Um, And he'd go in, he'd take off his leg, he'd put the phones into his false leg, come back to the prison. Uh, So we learned about it through intelligence work and so we had to take his leg off him. Um, Some of the more funny instance was uh, back in the day, hair extensions were very, very popular. And um, they were using the hair extensions to conceal drugs in the extension on the hair. So we used to make the ladies take off their hair extensions, put them into those trays they could see at the airport. Unfortunately, one couple, an elderly couple coming in behind, they were looked at the tray that we had just scalped lady and they got terribly panicked they thought mother to god what are they doing here so are we you know it's um so some of them are quite funny and i look a a lot of them are more serious and the book describes it incredibly well but i just can't you can't uh, bring this out to an open air i'm sorry (laughs) well if people want to hear more about what went on they can of course read your book it's unlocked an irish prison officer's story by david mcdonald with mick clifford and it's published by Sandy Cove and is available in shops and online now. David, lovely talking to you. It's been a fascinating life that you've had. It's a great book. And thank you for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM this morning. Cork's 96FM. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.